We have been considering the gospel in Romans, the gospel in the book of Romans. And it does present a bleak picture of humanity in the first few chapters. But no worries, there is plenty of gospel, plenty of good news, plenty of hope. I want to let you know if you're new that we do what's called expository preaching. We work section by section through the passage of Scripture, through books of the Bible, through all these chapters. It might take some time to work through these. It might take months, even years to get through Romans. But the Lord inspired Paul to write it in this exact manner. One sentence after another, one paragraph after another, one chapter after another. And so the meat and potatoes of our teaching and preaching at church needs to be working through it just like God inspired it. And Lord willing, if we are in it for many years, the Lord will bring much fruit from the gospel of Romans. We will be edified and sanctified even more as Christians. And Lord willing, people will be saved as they come in, as they hear the gospel being spoken of every week and being expounded every week. Well, we start the next chapter, chapter 2 of Romans, a message today I've entitled, Hypocrites Are Without Excuse. Hypocrites are without excuse. Sometimes people will say, I don't want to go to church. There's a lot of hypocrites there. And some people are funny and they say, well, come, we have room for one more. Sometimes what they mean by that is I don't want to be convicted of my sin. And they're going to preach against my sin and I don't want to hear that. Well, Paul's going to define a real hypocrite for us right here in this passage. Romans 2, 1 through 3. I'd hope to get to verse 4, but I felt like you probably weren't ready for two hours on this passage. 4 is just packed full of the attributes of God and repentance. and So we'll save that one for next week. But there are sometimes hypocrites, true hypocrites, that make their way into a church. It has no place in the Christian life, but there are sometimes some that are among us and some that populate various religions in the world. And so Paul is now going to address that as the form of a Jewish person who looks down upon the Gentiles for their sin. Let's look now at chapter 2, and I'll read to you 1 through 3. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul is striking right at the heart of a hypocrite, of a self-righteous person here. And just to remind you how he's built up to this point, in chapter 1 he starts off just by introducing himself. And the first 15 verses have to do with Paul talking about his calling as an apostle, his mission, and the reason that he's writing this letter to the Romans. He also covers how he's been praying for them, how he asks their prayers so that he can come and see them and minister to them. And then in 16 and 17, he gets right to the point. The whole point of the whole book is found in 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed, he says, of the gospel. He's not ashamed of the message that sometimes people hate, that sometimes people will kill Christians for. He's not ashamed of it. Why? 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the only way to be saved. There is no other way except from God. And He provides the power for salvation. His power is the power that saves. A person has to believe and God will reveal His righteousness. The righteousness of Christ to that person If they live by faith, meaning faith from the beginning when they first are justified and faith throughout their whole life, a person is saved through faith alone in Christ alone. So that is the gist of his whole book. Now he's going to unwrap that. The rest of Romans is unwrapping that and then applying that to the believer's life. So the reason it's so important, he says, is because in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. So you have the righteousness of God through Christ being revealed in the gospel. Why is that important? Because so many people are under the wrath of God. So many people are right now, present tense, Paul says. And up until today, under God's wrath. And he develops that. He says they suppress the truth. Especially the Gentiles is who he's got in mind here in chapter 1. They're pushing down the truth. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to really think about God. They don't want to glorify God. They don't want to thank God. They would rather turn to idols. God has made himself known in creation. He's made himself known in their hearts. They know he exists, but they turn away and they fall into idolatry. And so that is why they're under the wrath of God. They have a basic knowledge of Him and they turn away in their hearts and in their mind. How is God's wrath being revealed to them? Well, Paul described that in 24 through 32 of chapter 1. He says that God gave them over to a punishment. God is the judge. And because they turned away from Him and turned to something else and worshiped that, God gave them over to their own sinful desires. And we saw the spiral of just how deep that will go. First, he mentions they gave them over to the lusts of their heart, sexual impurity, which he says gets to its worst in the form of the homosexuality that is present in the world. It goes against nature. It goes against the way that God created man and woman. And then he gets down to this list of 21 sins listed at the end of chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. And he lists every major category of sin that the Gentile commits. And then he sums it all up at the last part there in verse 32. Not only do they do those things, but they endorse and they celebrate when others sin in that way. It's one thing to do it out of passion, but it's quite another to do it and celebrate others who also are sinning, knowing that it's worthy of death. Knowing that God will send people to hell for that sin forever. And they're celebrating it. They're endorsing it. They're affirming it. And Paul says they are condemned without the gospel. Now he changes to a new audience in chapter 2. And he answers the question, what about the Jew? Will the Jew be judged as well? Even though the Jews know more about God And they have this covenant with God that he made on Mount Sinai. Will they be judged for their sin? What about the Jew? They have the Bible. They know more about God than anyone else existing at that time. Because they have God's written revelation. 
And so now Paul turns his aim at them and will look at the Jew all the way through chapter 3 and verse 9. Then he comes back and summarizes, including both Jew and Gentile there at the end of chapter 3. So in this first little segment, 2, 1 through 16, he's going to show us that Jews are accountable before God. It's real clear, Paul says, everyone's accountable before God for their sin, and that includes the Jews. Now, he doesn't mention the word Jew until you get down to verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law. Then he goes into how the law condemns them as well. So many people have looked at this and they've said, well, the first 16 verses are really not talking about the Jew. They're talking more about the moralist who's a Gentile, the philosopher, the one who looks down their noses at all the other Gentiles. But most agree that this is a change here in verse 1 to focus on the Jews. Why? Well, let me give you just a few arguments before we dive into the text so that you can understand why he talks about the Jews here, but doesn't mention them until verse 17. First of all, I believe it is talking about the Jewish moralist, the Jewish unbeliever, because in verse 17, that would be quite an abrupt change to be talking for 16 verses about someone and suddenly change gears and throw in a Jew by name suddenly. So it's better understood that he starts there in verse 1 of this chapter talking about the Jew. Now, Paul's not going to leave them out for their sin. He's not going to skip over the fact that they sin. He's going to include them because he's already told us, look at chapter 1, verse 16. There's really two groups. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And look at these two groups, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the Greek is everyone that's not a Jew. All the Gentile nations. There's Jew and there's Gentiles. Greek. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. He brings this up again. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. So I think it's a clear change here to the Jew, both because Paul isn't going to just change in verse 17 so abruptly. He's going to build up to that, mention specifically of their name there in verse 17. But also, he's including the two groups in this section. Gentiles will be judged for their sin, and Jews will be judged for their sin. Before he even discusses the law, before he even discusses the Old Testament, he will bring in the fact that Jews sin too and will be held accountable. Well, I had two points I thought we could go into today with verses 1 through 4, but we're only going to get to the first one, verses 1 through 3. But that's okay because I have some sub points for you. I don't want to fail you by just putting one point up on the screen. The main point of 1 through 3 is that hypocrisy in religion leads to the judgment of God. Hypocrisy in religion, in spiritual matters. We could say in our theology, in our practice, it leads to the judgment of God. This is how Paul starts his argument. So what is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. This is a pretender, an actor. They act a certain way around this group of people But in their own private life, they live completely different. 
They preach one way and they live an opposite way. They hold themselves to be self-righteous and they present their righteousness to everybody, but actually are living quite the sinful lifestyle. Paul is going to tell us here the self-righteous, those who think they're good enough to not be judged for their sin, are actually condemning themselves by doing that. These are those who look down on others. They feel morally superior because of how well they think they obey God's law. This is not the genuine Christian who's been saved, who's grateful to God, who calls people to turn to Christ and repent of their sins. This is the person who thinks they can earn God's grace, earn God's blessing by trying to be a good person, by trying to obey God. But really, in their heart and in their private life, they're just a sinner. They're a sinner like every Gentile pagan that Paul has already mentioned in chapter 1. These really are the unbelieving Jews of Paul's day, the Pharisees, the legalists in the New Testament, the Jew who had not trusted in Christ for salvation. But in the end, they're just like the Gentiles trying to work their way to God. And Paul's going to say, you're accountable as well, O Jewish man. Now, he's going to do this. It's very interesting. I don't know if you study logic, but he's going to start his argument with a logical argument, what's called a syllogism. A syllogism is a conclusion made based on two premises or two propositions or two truth statements. So you make two statements, and from that you can conclude now a third statement. So Paul's very logical here. He doesn't start off necessarily quoting Scripture. He will get to that. We'll see in verse 6, he'll quote Scripture. He'll keep doing it. He'll really get into quoting Scripture in chapter 3. But he just wants to start with what they already know to be true and show them that even their own mind and heart convicts themselves of the sin they're committing. Let's look at this. First of all, premise 1, the first premise, the first truth statement that he gives Even the self-righteous judge practices sins. Even the self-righteous judge practices sins. So the the hypocrite, the self-righteous, they don't think they commit any of those sins listed in chapter 1. They look down their nose. They say, those awful, poor pagans, those idol worshipers, they're going to hell. And they agree and they clap and they say, God will punish them. But when it comes to the end of it, they're practicing the same kinds of sins in their own life. That's Paul's first statement. And it is quite the punch if you're a Jew of his day. Even a Jew today to read this would be a punch right to the gut. Look how he starts in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. Therefore. Now, he's been talking in the third person about Gentiles. He's been saying they do this, they do that. God gave them over. Now, suddenly, though, he starts using the second person, very direct. You, oh man, you have no excuse. The reason he's doing that is it's called diatribe in ancient Greek. It's where you would argue with someone in your writing or in your speech But the person isn't necessarily a real person, but it represents all the arguments that Paul has had. And preachers, we do this all the time, right? Some people say to me, and I'll say what those people say, and then I'll answer it. 
That's the kind of style called a diatribe. He's going to do this in chapter 2. He's going to do this in chapter 3. He'll do it later in chapter 9 when he's discussing election, discussing God's sovereignty. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God, to answer back to God? It's very direct. It hits the heart. That's why he's doing it. He's raising the level here of the emphasis, the emotion, the intensity. He's a master speaker and he's a logical thinker. And here's how he argues. Therefore, just stop on that word. Therefore, connects back to what he's already said in chapter 1. Therefore, based on all I've said about the Gentiles, you're guilty as well, he says. You Jew are guilty as well because you commit the same sins. That's the idea here. You have no excuse. You have no excuse. You can't stand before God and make an excuse. The word excuse here in Greek has to do with a defense at your trial, at your court case. You can't even make a defense. If you're called to come before the judge, God Almighty, you have no excuse. You can't say, I'm a Jew. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I had the Mosaic law. Paul just says right away, you have no excuse. You can't make any excuse. He's already said that about the Gentiles back in chapter 1, verse 20. He said they're without excuse because God has revealed himself to every person who exists in this world. God has revealed himself through nature. They know there's a God. They know they should worship him and they don't. So they're without excuse. Now the Jew is sitting there and they're thinking, you know what? I know there's a God. I go to synagogue every Sabbath. And Paul says, no, you're without excuse too. You're just like the Gentiles, he's saying. You have no excuse. And he even says, oh man, it's not in the NASB. I was supposed to read the the passage to you out of my LSB, but I've got it here in my notes. Literally in, in the LSB has this. Therefore, you have no excuse, oh man. Again, he's very direct here. He's directing his words to the opponent who holds this view that they would have an excuse. That the Jew would have some reason to escape judgment. It kind of reminds us of how the prophet Nathan came to David. You remember when David had committed adultery with Bathsheba? You remember he committed adultery with her? He kills her husband. All of this sin bound up. And then one day the prophet Nathan comes and he tells him this little story about the little lamb who was stolen away. This man had all these sheep and he goes and steals the one little lamb out of someone's house. And David says, who is this man? I want to punish him. And what does Nathan say? You are the man. You are the man. That's the kind of feeling we ought to get here when Paul says, you have no excuse, oh man. He's describing the hypocrite. And he's going to tell us, Who this is. Very clear. This isn't the Christian who's in church loving the Lord, speaking the truth about Scripture that offends the world. No, he says, every one of you who passes judgment. Who is the hypocrite? The person who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. Now pay attention here, because sometimes Christians are told not to judge. And they might even cite this verse. Look, you're a hypocrite if you judge. Let's follow all the way through. Paul's going to mention two things about this man, this this Jewish self-righteous hypocrite. The first part is that they judge, but we can't forget the second part we're going to look at here in verse 1 as well. He says, 
You pass judgment. You condemn people as guilty and liable for punishment based on their lives and their actions. This word and all the judging words here in this passage are in the present tense. This is habitual. This is the person who continues to pass judgment on others all the time. He looks at their life and he says, you're in sin. You're going to be judged by God. Now, the old pastor William Shedd said, it's a universal trait in man to sit in judgment upon the conduct of others. We're experts on this. We love, especially the unconverted man, to sit in judgment on other people and feel morally superior. Of course God loves me and I'm going to heaven. I mean, I'm better than all my friends. I'm a better person than my neighbors, most of my family. You know, God has got to see that I have more good than bad. Well, that's a form of looking down upon, judging others, thinking that you're better off as an unconverted sinner than they are. Well, he says, really, you're just condemning yourself. This kind of legalism, this being judgmental, you're just condemning yourself, he says. Because you're condemning others for their crime, you're admitting that you know they've committed a crime worthy of death. You know it. He says, I've got you here because you know what they're doing is wrong and they're going to hell for it. And you're condemning yourself because he's about to say they do the same. It's as if you're seeing a murder happen and you're telling the guy he's going to prison. And at the same time, you're back here committing your own murder, thinking you're going to get away with it. You know it's wrong. You admit it's wrong, but you don't apply it to yourself. The Jews did believe this at Paul's time. They were pharisaical. They were legalistic. They even had a writing, a Jewish writing, not scripture, but a writing that came out right before Christ. It was called the Wisdom of Solomon. Here's a line from the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 15, verse 2. It says, this is the Jews speaking. For even if we sin, we are yours, God, knowing your power. But we will not sin because we know that we are counted yours. So they're saying, we know you don't like sinners, but we're not going to sin. We're not like those pagans. You know, the Pharisee who went to the altar and he said, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that tax collector right there. Thank you, Lord. Pat myself on the back that I'm so awesome. Well, that's the way the Jews thought in that day. Why are they really guilty, though? He says, because you do the same sins yourself. That's the real issue. You do the same sins yourself for you who judge, practice the same things. We have to take this with the fact that they are judging. Is it wrong to judge? Is it wrong to look at sin and say, that's wrong. God is against that. God will judge you for your sin. Well, if that's wrong, then what was Paul doing in chapter 1? All of chapter 1, what's his argument? The wrath of God is revealed against All of these sins in the Gentile world. He was judging. He was saying that they will be judged by God. They will go and pay the punishment. Jesus did the same thing. Jesus did the same thing. He he said, woe to you. And he named whole villages, whole cities. Woe to you Pharisees and scribes. Woe means you'll be condemned. You'll be judged. The problem with judging though, this verse says is that they're practicing the very thing that they're judging in others. They're assuming they'll get off scot-free 
on Judgment Day. Everyone else is doing those sins and they're going to perish, but not me. Do you remember when the tower fell on those people and they, they came, others came to Jesus and said, was it because of their sin that the tower fell on them? And what did Jesus say? He didn't talk about them, did he? He said, you're going to perish for your sin unless you repent. You'll perish like them. And the implication is eternal, eternal punishment if you don't repent. So now look at this contrast Paul's making. In verse 32, he says that the pagans endorse other people's sin. They celebrate it. And then in the very next verse, he says, look, Jews, you condemn people's sin which in and of itself is a good thing. That's fine. You can condemn sin out there in the world, but then you turn right around and you do the very sin you condemn. They don't live out what they say. They don't live out their message that they proclaim. It would be like a pastor who is telling you to live a righteous life in Christ, telling you to be sanctified, telling you to turn from sin, and then you find out they have all this sin in their life that they're living They've got multiple women on the side that they're completely living as a drug addict. That's hypocritical. John Calvin says the design of Paul is to shake them off here, to shake off from the hypocrites their self-complacencies. That they may not think that they can really gain anything, though they be applauded by the world, and though they regard themselves guiltless. People will applaud a hypocrite because he looks so wonderful. She looks so great. She looks like she's living a godly life. But really, in her heart, in his life, it doesn't match with what they're saying. Let's go over to Matthew 7 here. Jesus talks about judging. And this is often where you'll hear Christians are told not to judge others because Jesus said that. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Now he is talking to his disciples here. He is talking to believers It's a little bit of a different context, but it's the same idea here. 7-1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. You be careful how you judge other people because you're going to be judged in the same way. He says in verse 2, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So now if that's all we had, we better really be careful about judging anything and anyone. But that's not all we have. Let's continue here. When somebody quotes this verse, pull out your Bible and keep going with verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You're going around looking for sawdust in your brother's eye, and you got a sequoia tree sticking out of your eyeball. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. He calls him a hypocrite. And he's even talking to his disciples here. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So be careful how you judge is the lesson. It's not that you should never judge, but you be careful that you're not living in the exact sin that you're going to approach someone else about. You know, hey, brother, I noticed that your facial expression was a bit prideful the other day, but I'm living in a complete life of debauchery. No, let's not do that, Jesus says. Take that log out of your own eye. Make sure you're living a godly life before you try and help others to live a godly life. Not a perfect life, but one that's generally trending in the accord of Scripture. That what the Bible teaches you are living out. 
Well, today, who is this today? We have the Jews of Paul's day. Who is this today? Well, this is everyone who claims to worship God and trying to live a moral life. We see this in many places. You see it in the Jews who are going to synagogue today. They're looking down upon others, thinking that they have a right relationship with God. You see this in the moralist, the deist today, the average American who believes in God, who thinks to themselves, well, I believe in God and I try to live a good life. Of course, I'll be in heaven someday. You see this a lot in false converts to Christianity who are in churches all throughout the world this morning. There are people sitting in churches who are doing their best to fool everyone, their family members, their spouse, the church leaders. They're doing their best to fool everyone. But they're really living a self-righteous, hypocritical life. And sometimes, unbelievers, unbelievers who, they'll admit they're an unbeliever, but they say, well, I'm not pagan. I don't believe in Christ, but I'm not pagan. I'm somewhere in between. Basically a good person. That's what all these people would say. I'm basically a good person. I don't commit those sins that are listed there in Romans 1. I've never murdered anyone. I'm basically a good person. And some people will say, you know, I've been a deacon in a church. I've been an elder in a church. My dad was a leader. My dad was a pastor. My mom was a Bible study teacher. My family was Christian. I was born a Christian. I mean, you're born in America. You're a Christian, right? That's what I thought growing up, really did. I'm like, well, I'm not an atheist. There's none around my town. Muslims live around the world. Buddhists don't live here. Everybody's a Christian. I'm a Christian. Well, that's not how it works, is it? This is all the people who think they are going to be saved based on their good works, and they look down their noses at everyone else. When I used to go to the jail system in L.A., there were all these different prisoners coming through, and they would serve about a year and either be transferred to the state prison after their court date Or they would get released because they had served their six months for drugs or whatever. And everyone that was not a believer, everyone you talked to said, you know, I'm innocent. I didn't do it. And I didn't do it. It's kind of like on that movie, Shawshank Redemption. And all the guys in prison were saying, I didn't do it. And they're all lying and they they laugh about it. Well, it's, it's that way in real life. And the only people who would admit that they did the crime they were in there for were the ones who'd gotten saved in jail. And they would have to say, you know what? I did do it. I did. So that's Paul's first premise. His first premise is that even the self-righteous judge practices sin. That's the one they would have struggled with. That's the one that would have hit hard at their heart. The second premise, they had to agree with. The second one is, God's judgment falls upon those who practice sin. God's judgment falls on those who practice sin. Paul just says, we know. He says, you and I both know. We already agree on this point. This is common ground. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. We know. All Jews know this because it's in the Bible. All Jews know that God will judge those who practice sin. And unless you turn to the Messiah, every person will be judged for their sin. And in fact, he's, he's even making the point here, look, it's impossible for God to overlook someone who practices sin. It's impossible. He's holy. He's just. Of course, God will judge sin. Proverbs 24, 12. If you say, see, we did not know this. Does not he, talking about God, does not he consider it? 
who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? God knows what you do. It's not a good thing when people say, God knows the good I've done. Yeah, and God knows all the sin you've done too. You can't earn salvation. It's impossible. Psalm 9.4, For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. Talking about God here. And then in 9.7 it says, But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. This is the kind of thing that a young Jew would have read. They would have heard it sung, these psalms in, in the synagogue as they went to synagogue in their homes. They knew that God was going to judge sinners. It's not like our world today. They pretend not to know this. The Jew would have agreed with this. Paul says, we know. Psalm 96, 13. Sing before Yahweh, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. It's because he's faithful. It's because he keeps his promises. We don't want criminals to go free. We've seen what that looks like in societies where criminals are just let out of jail. They're not even punished. Well, imagine God just letting every sinner go free. Come on, sinners into heaven. That's not heaven. That would be hell. God's not going to allow that anyway because he is holy. He is perfect. The text says literally the judgment of God according to truth. It's according to truth that God judges. It's not according to what we see on the outside. God knows the truth. All the facts of the case will be at hand is what he's saying. Everything that a person has ever done will be on hand to examine as evidence. The hypocrite, the self-righteous, will not be able to hide anything. See, a hypocrite is an actor. They're a pretender. They're able to hide quite a bit from most people, but not from God. He will judge according to truth, it says. God will not see as man sees because he knows all things. It won't matter on judgment day that people say there's a godly man. He looks like a godly person. He's the best looking, best dressed, most blessed of all the people I know. He's wealthy. He has an all-American family. He gives to his church. He serves in his church. And he must be a godly Christian man or woman. God knows the heart, though. Sometimes that person is blessed of God, and he is a true believer. But it's not based on what we see. It's based on the faith that comes out of his heart that he is a Christian, not the blessings that God gives him. Some people will say, well, you know, that man can talk so much theology. He's a better Reformed person than John Calvin. And that person can fool you for years. And then one day you hear that they ran off into a sinful lifestyle. And you just think, how could they do that, knowing all the good theology from Scripture? Because they were never saved. They were fooling people. None of that's going to matter if you're living in sin with a truly unregenerate heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Samuel is called to go and, and find a new king. And Samuel looks at all these strong, strapping young men. That must be the king, God. That must be your king. No? Okay, that one. And God says, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. 
Now you will see good fruit from a person's heart that loves the Lord, that's truly saved. But be careful, be discerning, because you will also see pretenders and actors present a good front. Jesus had very strong warnings to proclaim against those who live a hypocritical life. Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you. Again, that's judgment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I mean, Jesus had no problem saying this. You know, today some preacher tells a woman preacher to go home and stop preaching to men. The whole Christian world just kind of blows up. And there's all these blog posts and videos, people writing against John MacArthur because he told a woman preacher to stop preaching to men and go back home. And yet, here's Jesus, hypocrites. Now, let's do it with the right heart. He had the right heart when he did that. But he was speaking the truth. They're going to hell. They're woe to them. Hypocrites, he says. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but on inside they are full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, he says. Strong words from Matthew 23 there when Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. Even those who are truly saved, truly regenerate, who are united with Christ, can sometimes be fooled by hypocrites. Have you ever wondered, how does an unbeliever get in the place of a church leader? How does an unbeliever become a pastor? Because people can be fooled. Christians, true believing Christians, can be fooled by a hypocrite. Christians, listen to the words of Paul here. The words of Jesus against the Pharisees. We think we can spot them a mile away, but sometimes we can't. We have to seek the scriptures. We have to know them so well that we're discerning. God expects us to protect the church. We welcome unbelievers to come to the service to hear the gospel. But you don't want unbelievers making up your membership. You don't want unbelievers becoming leaders in the church. It'll grow if you have unbelievers leading because what's going to happen? It'll be dark. There'll be lots of smoke. There'll be some laser lights. It'll be a concert. But where's the church going to end up? Just falling off the cliff and going further and further into a watered-down gospel. Well, Jesus had strong warnings. We need to be careful. Now, we're not to go around judging people's hearts. That is what God does. But we look at the fruit. We're discerning. And we know that God will judge those who practice sins, even if they're hidden sins in their life. How many people today would you meet that would say they're living a good and moral life? Most people in America. Most people in Texas. Most people in our community, this is our mission field. They're unbelieving, unregenerate, and they say, I'm living a good life. God approves. I'm a Christian. I was recently telling some of the brothers, I think it was at Shepherd's Conference, that it's not like in California. In, in California and other places, it's very clear often who is a Christian and who is not. It's very clear. There's a separation. In places where there's morality, in places where it's more conservative, you have people who say they're Christians and they're not. And that's actually the mission field. How many atheists do you know who are living locally? There might be some. There's probably, I think there's a group down in San Antonio that meets. Most of the unbelievers that we come across are people who say they're Christians, 
but they're actually not living the Christian life. They're not attending any church, or maybe they're going to a bad church. That's our mission field. We can't be full just because we live in Texas. You know, it's the East Coast and the West Coast people that really need the gospel, right? And sometimes people say, well, they can just fall off into the ocean. It's not about conservatism. It's not about morality. Let me read to you something that I recently read. Samuel Say is a a Christian writer. He's good. I recommend his blog. I think it's slow to write. Here's what he wrote recently. He got picked up by the Christian Post. He said, last week, Dave Rubin of the conservative show, The Rubin Report, and the man he calls his husband, announced their fathers of two children through surrogate mothers. Many supposed conservatives, including commentators and media outlets like Candace Owens, Prager University, and The Blaze, shared their support. Nevertheless, when Pete Buttigieg, the leftist liberal politician, When he and his partner announced last year that they're fathers of twins, they were criticized by many of the same conservatives who are supporting Dave Rubin and his partner today. That's a perfect example of hypocrisy. You know, if they're my friends and I like their politics, I can acknowledge and endorse their sin. But if I'm against them politically and they sin, I'm going to make a big fuss about it. Look, it's not about morality. It's not about being conservative. It's not about... Being the good person that everybody thinks you are. It is about Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's where he's going with this whole argument here. It's not about living a hypocritical life. God's judgment will literally fall upon them, the text says. It will fall upon those who practice the same sins as the unbelieving pagan world. Let's come to the conclusion now of Paul's argument. This is in verse 3. This is the conclusion of his logical progression here. Even the self-righteous judge falls under God's judgment. He says, look, if you agree with number two, which all Jews did, and Paul's made a case in his first point that they practice the same things they condemn, then there's only one conclusion. You, the self-righteous judge, are going to be judged by God. He puts this in a question, a rhetorical question. Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself? Let's just stop right there. He's concluding his argument and he's saying, do you really think you're going to get away? Do you think that you can look down your nose at other people and admit that they're going to hell and then do the same thing and get away? It's sort of like, what's wrong with you? You know, R.C. Sproul, what's wrong with you people? You practice the same sins. Now, this doesn't mean that the Jews were going out and being engaging in homosexuality, that they were worshiping idols again. He's really focused on those sins at the end of chapter 1 of Romans, 29 through 31, those 21 sins there. And he's looking and saying, look, of those sins, you do some of those sins. Some of the Jews did many of those sins. Leon Morris, the commentator, said this would be a startling charge to a Jew. He was sure that the Gentile did all manner of wicked things, as Paul has made plain in chapter 1. But he himself lived in a very different way, he thought. He was especially firm and having nothing to do with idolatry, which Paul has castigated so severely. Yeah, they might not practice homosexuality, but they put their wives away for nothing. They divorced their wives because they burnt a meal. Well, I've got somebody else in mind in the village. I've got somebody else in mind that I want to marry. They were practicing adultery in that way. They were practicing adultery in their hearts. Yeah, they might not worship idols, but they worship money. 
They went after mammon. They went after possessions. They may not practice outward adultery, but they were always lusting in their hearts, like many today, as they look at electronic devices. They were falling into those same sins. Maybe not murder, but they were hating one another. And the Bible says that is murder in the heart. How much more so today of all of these? All these sins that Paul listed at the end of chapter 21. How much more so today are people practicing those and looking down their nose at others? How does our society worship money? Possessions. It's all about getting the best toys, getting the nicest house, getting the most awesome car, and showing all your friends. That really is all the world has. You see that. Showing off their possessions. And Paul says, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? The word escape here is ek fugo. It means to become free from danger by avoiding some peril. That fugo is where we get fugitive from. You're getting away scot-free. You think you can get away from God's judgment? This word is used over and over to speak of God's judgment. Listen to a few verses here. 1 Thessalonians 5.3. Paul says, while they're saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Hebrews 2, verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Look, he says, Christ is the only way to be saved. He says this to the Jews in in the book of Hebrews. How can we escape? The judgment, if we neglect that salvation. And then again, Hebrews 12, 23. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him, talking about Moses, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. This is the height of hypocrisy. To think that you can say they're going to hell for those sins. I commit those sins though. Nobody knows but me. And I'm going to escape. Do you really think that God doesn't see your sin? Do you really think that God somehow puts blinders on when you sin, but looks at those pagans who are worshiping idols in India today? That's the height of hypocrisy. To think that you're good enough to escape the judgment of God on your own accord. John Calvin said they are then extremely besotted. I mean, that's just a great old English term, besotted. He didn't speak English. This is a translation. Who think that they can escape the judgment of God, though not allow others to escape their own judgment. They think everyone else is going, but they'll escape. You know, when it comes to the final judgment, do you know what it says in Revelation? Do you know how God's going to judge the unbelievers? He's not going to say, give me your good works and put them on the scale and give me your bad works. It says in Revelation 20, And I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne. And books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. It says you'll be judged according to your deeds. And people say good. Good deeds versus bad deeds. You know what the Bible says about your deeds? They're all filthy rags. They're all sinful. They're all evil. Unless you're redeemed in Christ. The only way to escape the judgment is Jesus Christ our Lord. That's it. Everyone else will be judged, will be sent to hell for eternity. 
But Christ is our Savior. He took our place. He died for sinners so we can escape that judgment. Not because of our own worth, but because of His worth. Because of what He did. Because of the price He paid. You know, Christianity is not about trying to be better than your sins. Trying to outgrow your sins. Trying to reform yourself. Christianity is about trusting in Christ for salvation. That's it. It's not about looking down at others and thinking that you are better than them. It is about Jesus. That's it. The old Sunday school answer for the little kids, Jesus, that's what it's about. It's about the good news that Christ died for sinners, that he purchased the people for his own possession, that we can be his and united with him through faith. So turn from those sins if this describes you. If you're a hypocrite, if you're self-righteous, if this passage describes you, turn away and turn to Christ. We're going to get next week into verse 4 where he talks about repentance and God's goodness and God's patience and God's kindness. Turn to God. Turn to the Lord through Jesus Christ. It makes no sense to continue living a hypocritical life. You will be found out. The Bible says your sin will find you out. You'll probably be found out in this life. But even if you don't, the Lord will judge you because he knows your heart. So turn to Christ before it's too late. And believer, don't ever fall into that trap of thinking you're better than someone else. And that's why God saved you. This is why God's sovereignty is such an important doctrine. Because we understand it's not based on anything we did. Don't think that you're better than everybody else. That's why God saved you. No, you're blessed because Christ died for you, because God saved you. But it's all of him and none of us. Can we say amen to that? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're not ashamed of the gospel. We love the Lord here. We we seek him. We want to do his will. We pray that the gospel would go out from this place, would come upon the ears of an unbeliever, would come upon the ears of a self-righteous that they might believe, that they might be saved, that you might change their heart. They would repent of that self-righteousness and turn to Christ. We pray, Lord, if anyone is here today and they've been fooling themselves and they've been trying to, to fool others, that you would wake them up, that you would use a text like this to wake them up to the reality that God will still judge them. They need to turn to Christ. So we thank you, Lord for providing a way. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.